Welcome to Scream Scene, <laughs> the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. Sarah, you 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 seem to have something something going on. Uh, you might want to put a DSer. On the audio, yes, sir. Yeah, on some of this audio, you're you're kind of um, slithering a little bit now like that you mention snake? it. Now that you mention it, yeah. What's up with that? I joined a cult. Oh, it's the cult of the cobra. Oh no! <laughs> it's a bit. Yes, I yeah. Oh, I just <laughs> yeah, thought... we're we're all good. Okay, you did look very concerned. I'm 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 a good actor. <laughs> but, you know, for the folks at home who want to learn more about the Cult of the Cobra, if they want to join... Uh, Continue listening to this episode. Right, because we are watching Cult of the Cobra from 1955, directed by Francis D. Lyon. I feel like it should be like a Lyon-based movie then. I mean, it's spelt with a Y. I stand by my statement. Okay. <laughs> So this is our first um, episode of November, our first post-Halloween episode. I hope everyone had a wonderful Halloween. We had a virtual movie night with our friends. We all got dressed up, turned on the webcam, got to see everyone's costumes and say, oh, that looks so neat, and take some neat photos. And then we watched a double feature of the 1932 The Mummy and then the 1999 The Mummy. That's right, which is one of your favorite movies. Yes. Yeah, it was really fun to find a way to get everyone together and still have the Halloween party without being in the same space. Because, I mean, we had, like, I want to say, like, 12 people. Yeah. And that would have been oh, way too many people to put into our living room during these pandemic times. With it being virtual, we also were able to have some people from out of town, like our friends who moved to Japan. That's right, which so, was really cool. Yeah, it was, like, extra special. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as always, we do a lot of extra stuff in October uh, for our listeners. So we had four special bonus content items go up on our Patreon through October, in addition to our regular weekly bonus audio. The weekly bonus audio is available for $5 patrons. On the $10 level, I put up a Dungeons & Dragons adventure I wrote that is set in a haunted house. And then for patrons of all levels, we had a special bonus episode about HUAC and the Hollywood Blacklist, an audio adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Music of Eric Zahn by Sarah, and Sarah's special music track of The Music of Eric Zahn that she composed and created uh, for that adaptation. So if you haven't had a chance to check those things out yet... Head on over to patreon.com slash podcast and enjoy. We just broke $100 on the Patreon. Yes, which is really cool. It's amazing. We are so thankful. But that means that we're also only $50 away from our first goal of $150 a month, where when we hit that, we will begin doing bonus episodes on horror-adjacent movies. Things that would be like Clue or Abbott and Costello meet. 
the Universal Monsters. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So um, that it's super exciting that we're getting that close. Um, so thank you, every one of you, um, and to all of our listeners as well. Absolutely. Also in October, we guested on a couple of really awesome podcasts you should go check out. The first was Rankin Vile, where we talked about Shingojira. And the second podcast was Amusement Sparks, which was on an episode uh, that came out the day before Halloween, where we talked about what a theme park based around horror movies in general would look like. Um, Both of these podcasts were very fun to guest on, and so we really encourage you to check them out. Absolutely. You know, it's been a busy October. It's also been a long and difficult year, as I'm sure everyone can attest to. I know that for our American listeners, this episode will be coming out the the day after the day after the election. Maybe not necessarily the day after the results. So it's going to be a stressful week. Yes. And we are happy to provide this escape. Yes. But speaking of escapes, uh, Sarah and I will be taking an escape of our own in the second week of November. Uh, We have only ever missed one week previous to this, and that was to continue working even harder on an episode. This is our first, like, actual week off from Scream Scene as a holiday, and it's also going to be our holiday from our regular work as well, uh, because we're taking a little week vacation to Banff, which is sort of a mountain resort town here in Alberta, and just sort of escaping for a little while. This is all done while aligning to COVID standards in our area and in Banff's area. We are not being irresponsible here. (laughs) We are, you know, taking things very seriously and following protocols. Um, We are lucky that in our area something like this is feasible. Yeah, and that, you know, a town like Banff, which thrives on tourism, is really taking all of this seriously, especially because um, travel bans and protocols means that they don't have the international tourist clientele that they used to have. So that's just some housekeeping notes to let you guys know that there won't be an episode next week, but we will be back the week after that. So no episode on the 11th, but yes on the 18th. Correct. So we've already said what we're watching this week, Mm -hmm. because I explained my new religion of being part of the cult of the Cobra. That's right. Um, But tell me what about this movie, which is basically, I'm presuming, an orientation video into the cult of the Cobra. It's it's more like, less of an orientation video and more of like a um, workplace safety video, I guess you could say, (laughs) showing... All of the terrible things that could happen to you if you disrespected the cult and its rituals and teachings. I see, I see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Very mm-hmm. important for me yeah. as a new member to observe. Understand, that's right. Especially a white new member. So, this movie was the bottom of the double bill with Revenge of the Creature from last week. So, it's definitely a B movie, definitely lower budget. Um, still, you know, we're coming out from Universal International here, but like across the board, you're going to see the evidence of like that this movie was lower tier. 
I do think there's going to be some interesting stuff for us to talk about after we watch it, though. And I am kind of looking forward to diving deep into some of the ambiguities it presents. But to talk about the making of the film, it was produced by Howard Pine, who had started as an assistant director in the 1940s before rising to become a producer in the 1950s. However, his career as a producer was pretty short-lived, and he actually spent the majority of the rest of his career from the 60s through to the late 80s as a production manager, um, which is the person who sort of runs the office, basically, when it comes time to making a film. Some of the movies he was production manager on include The Karate Kid and its first sequel. Oh, dope. He passed away in 1999. The film's director, as I mentioned earlier, is Francis D. Lyon, who was born in 1905 in North Dakota and graduated from UCLA before moving to England to pursue his film career, where he became an editor for J. Arthur Rank in the 1930s. I wonder why he moved to England and not Hollywood. Well, he was already in Hollywood. He was graduating from UCLA, so I would have to assume that he just couldn't find work right away after school. I guess that's also when Rank is, like, slowly taking over everything. So he's like, ah, I'll move to England where the source of the Rank organization lies. Well, when things are booming, yeah. (laughs) He continued as an editor through the 30s and 40s. He won the 1947 Academy Award for Best Editing with Robert Parrish for the film Body and Soul. And then he began to direct in the 1950s. Um, television and B-pictures. Like, that was his thing. Like, he would direct a few episodes of TV, direct a B-movie, some more TV, a B-movie. So pretty steady work, then. Mm-hmm. Cult of the Cobra was his third feature film, and TV and B-movies would basically be the rest of his career. In 1966, he co-founded United Pictures Corporation, which was a company designed to specialize in producing B-movies for theaters that would be formatted and timed to make them easy sales to television. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Lyon retired in 1970, and he passed away in 1996. The story for Cult of the Cobra originated with Jerry Davis, a TV and B-movie writer who would go on to work as a producer on TV shows in the 1960s like Bewitched, That Girl, and The Odd Couple. The screenplay would ultimately be the work of Davis, as well as writers Cecil Maiden and Richard Collins. We've talked a little bit about Richard Collins in a few previous episodes. Uh, He had worked as a screenwriter in Hollywood since the late 1930s, uh, including writing such films as the World War II-era pro-Soviet propaganda film Song of Russia. Okay. This, and his various communist affiliations in the 1930s... Would not go over well in this decade. Yeah, it would lead to Collins being called as a HUAC witness in 1951. Collins admitted his former affiliations, said he had left the party by 1939. He also named 26 of his colleagues as communists, including his ex-wife, Dorothy Comingore, and the writer of last week's movie, Martin Berkeley, who then went on to name, like, 160 people. Collins found success later as a producer on the television series Bonanza and Matlock. Ah. And he passed away in 2013. The cinematography here is by Russell Meddy, who began his career in Hollywood in the late 1920s as a camera assistant. 
Uh, he had risen up to director of photography by 1934, and he worked on films like Bringing Up Baby in 1938, the reshoots for The Magnificent Ambersons in 1942, The Stranger in 1946, and later Touch of Evil in 1958, Spartacus in 1960, for which he would win an Academy Award, and he also shot The Omega Man in 1971, before passing away in 1978. So we've got a good cinematographer here. Yeah, working with Orson Welles, Mm -hmm. that's a big deal. The film's editor is longtime Universal employee Milton Carruth, who edited Dracula in 1931, Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1932, The Mummy in 1932. Working on Murders in the Rue Morgue probably caused quite a few gray hairs. Dracula's Daughter in 1936, The Mummy's Tomb in 1942, Shadow of a Doubt in 1943, Captive Wild Woman in 1943, The Mad Ghoul in 1943, and many, many other Universal films. Uh, This is probably the last time we're going to see his work, but he would continue working as an editor till 1966, passing away in 1972. Our lead actress and villain is Faith Domergue, a 25-year-old ingenue who replaced Universal's then-go-to femme fatale, Marie Blanchard, who dropped out of this movie a few days into shooting. Oh, oh dear. Faith Domergue was born in New Orleans in 1925. She was part Creole, but she was adopted and raised by white parents. Her family moved to L.A. when she was a young girl, and that's where Faith grew up. She wanted to be an actress, but at age 17, she was in a near-fatal car crash that kind of put that dream on ice. While she was sort of recovering from her injuries from that accident, she got invited to a party where she was discovered by Howard Hughes, who became quite enamored with her and got her a three-year contract at RKO. He cast her in the movie Vendetta, which began shooting in 1946. But, like many Hughes films, took a roundabout route to getting released, finally seeing theaters in 1950 after a cost of $4 million, and was a critical and box office flop. By the time it came out, Domergue had separated from Hughes, and was on her second child with her second husband. She shot her last RKO film in 1942, This Is My Love, which wouldn't be released until 1954. By that time, uh, she had already signed with Universal, and she appeared in three westerns there before filming Cult of the Cobra. During the shooting of Cult of the Cobra, she was going through a breakdown in her marriage, That would end in divorce in 1958. She was getting very little sleep. She was under quite a lot of stress. So she tried to get the director to agree not to give her any close-ups for fear that she wouldn't really, like, look her best because she would have, like, bags under her eyes and and all these things. Yeah. Um, But as the lead actress in the movie, this was not a workable request. That's what the makeup department is for. Domergue would go on to appear in more genre films. Uh, The giant monster movie It Came From Beneath the Sea, uh, with effects by Ray Harryhausen, and Universal's first color science fiction film, This Island Earth, both later in 1955. 
Her final film would be the horror movie The House of Seven Corpses in 1974, and she passed away in 1999. Okay. The film features a large number of young leading actors. The top build among them is Richard Long, who is still billed under Faith Demerg. He was a 28-year-old Universal contract player. This was his first lead role. One of his earliest notable roles was as Loretta Young's younger brother in The Stranger. Okay. And then what he was most known for before this was as Tom Kettle, the son of Ma and Pa Kettle in Universal's series of Ma and Pa Kettle comedies from the late 1940s through the early 1950s. Okay. Later in his career, he focused on television, appearing on many ABC television series like Bourbon Street Beat, 77 Sunset Strip, The Big Valley, and others. He Is others like other movies or like other, other things? TV shows, yeah. Or, no. okay. Yeah. It, <laughs> with some of the names of these things, I just thought maybe it was good yeah, to clarify. The TV show was not named others. I mean other TV shows. Okay. Long died of heart failure in 1974 at age 47. Oh, that's young. Yeah, he was born with... I believe, a heart defect. So, His co-star in this movie, Marshall Thompson, was also his brother-in-law after Thompson married Barbara Long in 1948. That's fun. Yeah. Reappearing from It Came From Outer Space is actress Kathleen Hughes. She's like the good girl in this movie versus Faith Demerig's bad girl. Also featured here is 24-year-old actor William Reynolds, who would later be best known for his role on ABC's The FBI from 1966 to 1974. 28-year-old actor Jack Kelly, who appears in this film, later gained fame as Brett Maverick's brother, Bart Maverick, on ABC's Maverick, starring James Gardner, uh, from 1957 to 1962. 24-year-old actor David Jansen would also later lead an ABC television series as Dr. Richard Kimball on The Fugitive from 1963 to 1967. I didn't kill my wife. So basically we have four young actors who would all go on to headline ABC television shows in the 1960s. But this is like early in their careers. Yes. They are nobodies at this point. Yeah, they're all like 20-something nobodies. It's just kind of funny that they're all together here in this movie. And then like by the mid-60s, they're all on ABC as like the leads of TV shows. And this doesn't skyrocket them to fame in any sort of way. This is just like... A thing they're all in. This is like a trivial pursuit answer. Yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, in the white actors playing Asians category of the film's cast... Yikes. We have Leonard Strong who made a career out of playing Asians, despite being extremely white. He was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. But his like whole resume is movies where he's playing various Asian characters. Um, notably, he was the villain The Claw, uh, who was head of Chaos on the 1960s comedy TV show Get Smart, starring okay. Don Adams. Yeah. Which also featured Edward Platt as the chief. And he is also in this movie as the other white actor in Yellowface. Great. So another, like, weird coincidence of, like, (laughs) these two actors together who will later be on a TV show together in the 1960s. 
Cult of the Cobra was released on May 30th, 1955. That's my birthday! Yeah! Except for the 1955 part. Yeah, you would be like negative 45 years old. Um, (laughs) It was criticized at the time for being perceived as copying plot elements from Cat People 13 years earlier. It is available on DVD in Universal's Classic Sci-Fi Ultimate Collection Volume 2. And it's available on Blu-ray in Scream Factory's Universal Horror Collection, Volume 6. So no one gives a fuck about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that might be one conclusion. Okay. Well, we will see what it is like. Yeah. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Cult of the Cobra from 1955, directed by Francis Lyon. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Cult of the Cobra from 1955, directed by Francis D. Lyon. Sarah, what did you think of this? This movie's pretty good. Yeah, I ended up really liking this. Yeah. I was surprised. I'm very, yes, surprised. I wasn't expecting much, but it's pretty good. It doesn't look like a B-movie. It looks like they spent money on this, except for a couple of instances where you're like, they didn't have the budget for something cool here. (laughs) But by and large, very good showing. Yeah, I thought so as well. I think that it's doing a lot of interesting things, and we can talk about how many of them are on purpose or not after we talk about the story. For sure. So I know it's 1955 right now, quote-unquote right now, (laughs) but cast your mind back as this film is set in 1945. Mm -hmm. We open in Asia. (laughs) Our main characters are these six U.S. soldiers, um, or like part of the Air Force, I think. Are they called soldiers? No, but I don't know what you call Air Force personnel who may or may not actually be like necessarily pilots, because of course if you're like support and stuff for the planes, like, you're still Air Force, right? So Yeah. Okay, but, like, they're in the Army. Mm-hmm. No. The military. They're not in the Army. They're in the Air Force. We <laughs> just went over this. <laughs> but they're in Asia. And tomorrow, they're getting shipped back to America. So this is the last day in Asia. And so they're out sightseeing. Mm-hmm. It's definitely mainland Asia. The script, I guess, originally called this Burma. But by the time the movie was finished, it just became generic Asia. It's got, like, a little bit of a Indian subcontinent feel, but also, like... A little bit of Thailand. Yeah, yeah. It's it's generic enough as to be nondescript. Yeah. We're definitely not in, like, Japan. Yes, that's why I brought it up. Or China. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's six guys, as I said... It's sometimes hard to keep them straight because they're all kind of the same. But we have Nick, who um, fancies himself a little bit of an amateur photographer. He's taken lots of photos during the sightseeing day. Then we have Paul and Tom 
are two main guys. Paul is like a research dude. Yeah, like he's a, like, he's a dude. research assistant for a scientist. And Tom is in the Air Force back home. He was like a commercial artist. These two are important as well because they happen to both be in love with the same girl back in America named Julia. But more about her later. And then our other three guys are Pete and Carl, both of which are fairly interchangeable, and Rico, who is going to be taking over his dad's bowling alley when he gets back to America. Yeah, I think Pete and Carl's deal is just like, oh, they're like ladies' men. Yeah. I think that's that's about it. <laughs> so the crew's in the market taking photos, and then they spot a snake charmer, and they're like, oh, cool, Like, let's see the dude do his snake charming. While they are there, Paul brings up that, you know, I've heard rumors of a snake cult here that believes that people can turn into snakes and back again. Um, now, the other guys are like, oh, yeah, whatever, Paul, blah, blah, blah. But the snake charmer is like, oh, I'm actually a part of that cult. We call ourselves Lamians. And you know what? Guys, uh, I need money, so I'll take you to the ceremony that's tonight so you can see the metamorphosis for yourself, um, but you need you do need to pay me like a hundred dollars. Yeah. Now all of the guys are like, man, this is probably just a bunch of hooey. But Paul convinces them, no, like this seems pretty interesting. This seems legit. Let's let's hear this guy out and and see this ceremony. Yeah, even if uh, they can't turn people into snakes, this cult apparently is like soup secret, and no outsider has like ever seen their rituals. So like. It'll still be cool to, like, get in and see the secret thing, right? Yeah. Now, because they are outsiders, um, the snake charmer does say, if you're caught, they'll kill you. And also, no photos, because you'll get caught, and then they'll kill you. Yeah. So they meet that night at a bar. By the time that the snake charmer appears, um, the guys are all fairly tipsy. Yeah, these guys are... Nice enough guys, but definitely, like, all kind of fit the profile of, like, you know, some... Popped colored douchebags? Yeah, I was gonna say... Fat boys? Yeah, I was gonna say, like, you know, military guys on leave. They don't take things very seriously. Everything's kind of a joke to them. They kind of think they're better than everyone here because they're a bunch of American soldiers on leave. And they're all pretty drunk. Yeah. But they go with the snake charmer, who again is like, no photos, remember, they're gonna kill you, and takes them in. During the ceremony, we get to see this neat dance number that depicts when the snake goddess first saved the Lamian people from oppression. And it's kind of neat, you know, kind of cool. There's this woman who is, like, in, like, the snake costume, which is, like, one of those, um, bodysuit things. Yeah, it's a unitard. Yeah, yeah. It's a morph suit. Yeah, morph suit. That's the word. Um, And she does, like, a cool job of performing like a snake. And just as she is heading back into a basket, um, because her snake job is done, Nick, who again is drunk and not thinking, snaps a photo with the flash on. Yeah, exactly. Like, I get that you're a shutterbug. I get that you're drunk. I get that you don't respect these people's culture or their beliefs or their rules. But if you're gonna sneak the forbidden camera in to take a photo, don't bring the fucking flash. Yeah. 
Rookie mistake, my dude. <laughs> so, chaos breaks loose. Nick, again, who is not thinking, panics, runs up to the basket that the lady just climbed into, and sees that suddenly there's a snake in there, closes it, picks it up, and runs. Yeah, so... So he's kidnapping their snake goddess as well? Yes. He has an explanation for it later that, like, he just thought he'd get, like, the woman in the basket out of it as a souvenir, which is a wild thing to say. But in the moment, it's like, wait, do you think you can escape if you have their snake god hostage? Is that what you're doing here? Now, the other U.S. guys, um... They back him up by starting, like, a tavern brawl and are just punching people left and right. Amidst this brawl, uh, the snake priest is like, All of you are cursed. Fuck all of you for fucking up our ceremony. You will all die one by one. Yes. The snake charmer who let them in is also summarily executed. So, blood on your hands already, guys. Nick escapes ahead of them. So these five other guys get out, they pile into a jeep, and they go driving down. And they're like, okay, well, we've got to catch up with Nick. And they see him collapsed on the side of the road with a veiled woman standing over him who darts away as they approach. When they get to Nick, he's collapsed because he's been bitten by a cobra and the basket is empty. Tom runs off after the girl to try to catch her, um, but he loses her. We get to see a close-up of her face, so it's a little easy to identify her later on. Hint, hint. They manage to get Nick to a hospital, and he's going to be okay. He's like, yeah, I was just having fun, but whatever. Like, I get to go home tomorrow, just like you guys. It's going to be so fun. Haha. <laughs> in the morning, he's dead. Because, as we see, the nurse tucks him in at night. It's thunderstorming outside for no reason, because it's a horror movie. We see from the snake's point of view, a cobra coming through the bushes, up through the hospital window, up his bed, and Nick wakes up just in time to see the snake attack. And the next morning, he's dead. You know, everyone's a little bit alarmed and confused about this, given that the doctors were like, yeah, we got all the venom out, for the most part, he's gonna be fine, and then he's dead the next morning of snake venom. And I guess the doctors just didn't have the heart to tell his friends that Yeah, a snake came in through the window and bit him again. But Paul is pretty uneasy about all of this. He's still thinking of that curse that the priest said. He has said, like, yeah, those people were sore at us, but they kind of had reason to be. Everyone else is just, like, mocking things. Yeah, as much as it was Paul's idea to go in the first place, he's also the first person to... Admit that there was some wrongdoing on their end. Right. And it's really interesting to see, like, a scientist character in one of these movies who is actually characterized by the curiosity inherent in a scientist as opposed to the kind of, like, stereotyped close-mindedness of, like, oh, well, that's not scientifically possible, so I don't take these people seriously. Like, he's curious about their religion, he's open to the idea that it might be true, and then, like, when they fuck everything up, he's the one who's like, hey, guys. We fucked things up. Yeah. So the boys are sad about Nick's death, but they are headed back to the U.S. Next thing we see is some bad news for Tom. Um, So he and Paul were both kind of going steady with um, this girl named Julia. Julia has chosen Paul. Uh, So she has to go break the news to Tom. 
Now, he's pretty upset about this, but he's like, yeah, okay, like, Paul's a good friend. We're roommates. They were roommates, Ben. So while he does say, yeah, we'll remain friends, it's all good, he does go home to sulk. I think it's a pretty believable reaction. Like, he's clearly upset, and that's, like, a reasonable thing for him to be, but he's also trying his best to be, like... Supportive. The, the Like, an adult about it, even though he's clearly upset. And he doesn't really hide that he's upset, but he's also trying his best to be like, yeah, I also want to be friends with you guys still, congrats, etc., I will say one thing that's a little unclear in the movie is how long after Asia this is. I feel like it's immediate. It's not, yeah, it's not like immediate, immediate, because like when they're in Asia and they're like, oh, what are you going to do once you get back? You know, Rico's like, oh, like my dad's going to give me his bowling alley. And by the time we get back, like that's already happened and he runs the bowling alley and that's kind of established. But it's also clearly not, like, a full ten years. Like, we're not in 1955. Yeah, I feel like it's, like, the week after they get back. Yeah. So Tom goes home to sulk. He's, uh, settling into bed. When he, suddenly, um, he hears a woman screaming next door. Now, he lives in, like, um, like a brownstone apartment. And across the hall is a new tenant who is the one who's screaming. So he goes in. Her name's Lisa. And... Audience members with sharp eyes will recognize her as the woman who had been standing over Nick. She was screaming because she thought that there was someone in her apartment, um, but it becomes clear that Lisa was only doing this to try to get an introduction to Tom in order to track down these guys in the big city. Yeah, it's really interesting. She chooses Tom to sort of target and use as her way to get to everyone else, and it's kind of brilliant because Tom's the one who just got this bad news romantically speaking and is feeling like kind of shitty about that and down on himself and everything and here's this woman who like needs him and needs his help and needs to be like rescued and it's a very like clever um sort of psychological inroad and because we know that like you know, for example, um, Pete and Carl are just, like, partying ladies' men. It's like, yeah, so we don't really... She doesn't really need to put any effort into getting close to them, so getting close to Tom gets her to everyone else. Yeah. She explains, you know, I've only been in America, in New York. We're set in New York um, for a week. So Tom's like, oh, well, I'll show you the New York sights tomorrow. They do that, and they have a good time. Um, Tom tries to take a pass at her and, like... Moves to kiss her several times at the end of the night. And she's, like, not interested. I don't know if it's the movie trying to be, like, Lisa's a cold fish. Or trying to show that Tom's a hound dog. But, in any case, one or both of those perceptions is what the movie is going for. I think both are kind of true. Like, we're supposed to get the feeling that there's something strange and mysterious about Lisa. The way that she keeps pulling away and being like, Tom, no, I can't. But it's also pretty clear that, like, one of the reasons why Tom is kind of so eager to move very quickly in this relationship is because of, like, the loss of Julia, who it seemed like was, you know, on the verge of either marrying Tom or Paul flip a coin. And so it's like, well, now my best friend is going to get married and I'm back to, you know, square one or whatever. And that, like, desire to kind of, like, catch up. And, like, oh, see, I also have, like, a serious relationship that I'm in. Yeah, for sure. 
After their date is when Lisa gets to see a photo of all of the dudes that are on her hit list and gets to hear that, you know, Pete and Carl are roommates and Rico operates Rico's bowling alley down the street or wherever. And Paul's my roommate. He's right over here. Yeah. Here's a list of all my friends, their addresses, and key personality definers. (laughs) By the way, Julia is also out of town right now because she's an actress and her show is on tour, so she's not in the story at this point. So that night, after Lisa says goodbye to Tom, she uh, heads down to Rico's bowling alley. We get a cool tense scene of Rico closing up his bowling alley and tense things happening in some manner of method, Lisa off-screen turns into a snake and gets into Rico's car and as Rico is driving attacks him from behind so he crashes, just does like a full like flip mm-hmm. off a curb and, and he's, he's dead. It's further underlined that Rico is dead because the next day practically is his funeral. Yeah man, they move fast in New York. So Tom takes Lisa in attendance Paul is there, Julia's still out of town, and Carl and Pete are there. So they happen to meet Lisa at this point. Now, this coming Sunday, Carl and I guess Pete, because they're roommates, were going to be throwing a party. And they're like, well, maybe we shouldn't because Rico just died. But you know what? We need something to lift our spirits. Okay, well, we'll still have the party. At the party, Tom is getting pretty jealous because Lisa is dancing with people, mingling with people, and Carl, in particular, is getting a little too close to her. Carl makes a pass at Lisa, and Tom knocks him out. Because Tom is a jealous dude. I mean... Which, I mean, I can... I can... Listen. I can understand that he would be sensitive to that, and Carl's being a dick. But also, Tom needs to chill the fuck out and get that under control. Tom exhibits a lot of bad behaviors in this movie from how much he pushes himself on to Lisa to his jealousy against Carl. But I do give the movie credit for setting up a situation where his bad behavior makes sense and is motivated. Like, of course, he's kind of sensitive to jealousy when, like, the last major relationship he was in, his roommate stole her, quote-unquote, from him, you know? And so it's, it's nice for once to see, like, especially the movie trope of, like, the whirlwind romance where, like, this couple comes together in, like, a few days have some, like, motivating factors in that, like, he's desperate and she's playing him. Yeah. (laughs) So Lisa and Tom leave. They head back to Tom's apartment, and um, it's becoming clear that, yeah, Tom is, like, head over heels for Lisa, just, like, very quickly is like, yeah, I'm in love with you. Uh, It's only been a few days. And Lisa is showing a bit more complexity in her emotions. It's clear that, you know, we know she's playing Tom, but she's also showing, like, some hesitation about how she has to kill his friends and Tom himself. Yeah, a little bit of guilt for the way she's using him, I think. So Lisa leaves and goes home, um, and Tom notices, oh, she left her gloves, okay, I'll just go across the hall, give it back to her. And he he goes in, and she's not in her apartment. So he's like, that's weird. She would have just come in. So he sits on the couch to wait for her. Where Lisa has gone is back to Carl and Pete's. Um, Pete heads out to take a girl 
home, walk her home, Lisa goes up to Carl's apartment. And he's, you know, cleaning up. Everyone's left. And he opens the door and he's like, oh, Lisa, surprised to see you here. And she's like, yeah, I'm here to apologize for Tom. And Carl's like, is that the only reason? (laughs) She's like, no, it's not. I came here for you. And he's like, oh, well, let me fix you a drink. Lisa transforms into a snake and strikes at him, bites him. And in so doing, he falls off the balcony. In the midst of this, he does manage to throw a statuette at this snake, and it cuts her. It cuts Lisa. In human form, she has a cut on her arm. Um, yeah. Now, Pete is just returning home when he sees the crowd outside his apartment building. He goes up and he's like, oh shit, Carl, on the sidewalk, fuck. And he notices Lisa in the crowd. Um, he goes to talk to her and basically walk her home, um, but then the police arrive and ask to take Pete downtown. The next day, Paul and Tom have been called to the cops um, for questioning, basically, mainly because of Tom's punch at the party. Lisa goes over to their place, um, kind of expecting them to be there, and she happens to meet Julia, who was over and having breakfast when the boys were called away. Now, in a previous scene, when Paul picks Julia up from like the train station or whatever, um, he's like, yeah, they're been some deaths and she's like oh shit and he's like yeah I I think it's because of the snake cult and he tells Julia you know about the snake cult conveniently leaving out why they might have a curse placed on them for fucking shit up but you know whatever Julia knows that there's a snake cult after these guys and Paul also shares to Julia that he suspects Lisa for some reason he can't really place why But he has a feeling that he's seen her before and that something isn't right with how quickly Tom is falling for her. Um, And he kind of like gets that first impression when Tom punches Carl at the party. So he's explained this to Julia and Julia lets slip that like, yeah, Paul is concerned about cultists or some shit. Julia doesn't mention that Paul has suspicions about Lisa, but Lisa puts two and two together. Julia gets threatened a little with, like, intense staring from Lisa. This is all interrupted by the delivery of some laundry uh, from the dry cleaners. (laughs) And Julia takes this opportunity to escape. Mm -hmm. She's like, I'll see you tonight, bye! Tonight is Julia's uh, performance in town. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Pete heads to Lisa's apartment to confront her He was let off the hook by the police because his blood type didn't match the second blood type that they found in the apartment. On the statuette. Right. He's put two and two together about the blood, and he says, I know, I've seen you before, you were sending over Nick's body, and basically lays it all out on the table. And Lisa tries to play nice and says, no, 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 like, I could show you my passport, blah, blah, blah. She kills him. She turns into a snake and kills him. Yeah. This is when we get our first actual transformation, like explicit transformation bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Lisa's shadow on the wall, and then it morphs into a snake shadow. Could have been better, guys. Yeah, we've seen this same effect done better. Yeah. From Universal. Yeah. But she kills Pete. She doesn't really have time to do anything about his body, though. As I said, that night is Julia's performance in town, and the plan was for everyone to go there, meet Julia at her dressing room, and then watch the show. So Lisa and Tom go, 
and they presume that Paul is there as well. We get to see that Paul is actually still at the police station uh, because he was like, yeah, I have a theory about snakes. (laughs) Now, Tom, before he left the police station, heard a bit of Paul's recalling of the snake cultists, and this is when Paul also says, like, yeah, and I think Lisa's involved, too, because of the timing of, like, her moving into the apartment and all of these deaths happening. And Tom's like, you're full of shit, Paul. Fuck you. Because of that outburst and because all of this very, very loose circumstantial evidence, um, the cops aren't really believing Paul either, but they are like, you know, maybe it is worth us talking to Lisa. The thing that really, like, changes their mind on it is the fact that once they've done autopsies of these people who have died in a car crash or being thrown off a balcony, they find that they're actually full of snake venom. As Tom and Lisa are arriving at the play and seeing Julia and are backstage, Paul is with the police back at their apartments, and that is where the police discover Pete's body dead on Lisa's carpet. So, just as the show is about to start, Paul calls the theater and gets to talk to Tom. And he's like, Tom, Pete's dead in Lisa's apartment. Something fishy is going on. And by fishy, I mean snaky. Yeah. And Tom is like, oh, fuck. And things are starting to connect and and sink in for him. He's left Lisa alone, and Lisa has gone to sneak off into Julia's dressing room where she thinks Paul is, so... She can go kill him. Now, Paul isn't there, Aubrey, so she hides. Julia comes off stage and goes to her dressing room to get ready for her next act or something. And a snake comes creeping out of the closet at her. She starts screaming. Luckily, Tom happens to be searching for Lisa at the same time and is near the dressing room. And he gets in and he sees the snake and he's like, fuck, Mm. Paul was right. (laughs) So he manages, quite handily actually, does like some quick thinking here, manages to get the snake covered with a coat, uses a coat rack to kind of push the snake out onto the fire escape and pushes it off, and the snake falls to the ground, just as the police and Paul pull up in the cop cars. Julia and Tom run out towards the balcony to look over and see, just in time, Lisa's body appear where the snake had been, um, clothes and all, yes. somehow, even though the snake was naked. Yeah, um, it's, it's always a little bit of a question in these movies of, like, where do the clothes go when they transform? <laughs> but it's doubly noticeable, I think, in this one, because Lisa was in, like... A, a gown and a shawl. And, like, jewelry, and it all just comes back. Yeah. And they see, like, oh shit, Lisa was a snake. And Tom rushes down to see Lisa's dead body, and he looks at Paul and just walks away. All sad. Horrified and in shock. The end. So, I think what I appreciated about this movie was that it knew it needed to kill off its large cast. Yes, that it had (laughs) a large cast for the purpose of of having people die one at a time until you got down to, like, the more important characters. Yeah. Yeah. And they were killed in non-repetitive ways as well. Um, They're killed in unique... I guess, like, the actual cause of death is still the snake venom, but the way that we see them 
portrayed on the screen is unique every time. Yeah, it's a... I mean, we throw this word around a lot, but like a proto-slasher thing of like, you know, by the time we get to Jason and the Friday the 13th movies, like the whole appeal of those movies is like each unique kill, you know, and how creative they can be about it and stuff, so... Mm -hmm. I think the moment that I knew that this movie was serious business, that it was like taking itself seriously and was putting money kind of behind it as well, is when Rico dies. Because Mm. it's not like stock footage of a car crash. Yeah, they shot like the car flipping. Yeah, and then we see his body like sprawled on the asphalt, like his waist still in the car um, with like smoke coming out of the car. So it's gruesome. And that's the moment I sat up and went, like, this movie is trying to do something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the only real sign of cheapness, I'll call it here, is Lisa in snake form. Yeah. Like, the POV shots are cool, and one of the cool things in the POV shots is that you can see the shadow of the snake Yeah. moving around, but... Once we finally kind of see the snake at the end of the movie, it's pretty clear why all the scenes before this have been shadows and POV, which is that, you know, they've just got like a snake puppet that is pretty immobile. Like, it's just kind of a plastic snake. It's definitely in the like, hey, when you've got it scooped on the coat hanger, like shake it around to make it look like it's moving, kind (laughs) of like school of you know, animal here. So they didn't, like, have a train snake, which I don't blame them. Um, I think the puppet is fairly well done because there are moments where you can see its tongue flick out. I really doubt that they would have a real snake. No. But um, the moments where you see the tongue uh, flick out are, like, when the snake is in the basket when Nick first goes to steal it. And I can't imagine them letting an actor get that close to a live snake. So that's why I think it was, like, a really well-designed puppet. Yes. The puppet definitely has the moving tongue. um, Because they do it in the shadows, too. What gives it away as being a puppet is the way that it um, lifts up, basically. Where, like, you can kind of tell that it must be, like, hanging off a wire above camera that's kind of holding it up. And it's a pretty typical thing whenever you see, like, fake snakes in cheap movies. Usually comedies is what I associate that looking (laughs) kind of snake with. So that's really the only thing that I think gives it a way for not maybe having as nice of a budget as it could have. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, they do very well with the money that they have. Yeah. The music is really well done. Um, cinematography is fun. Like you've pointed out, the transformation flops. I think the acting overall is pretty all right. Yeah. Um, Faith Demerg as Lisa is kind of the standout. I think she does a pretty good job, especially considering, like, knowing all of the um, background stress mm. she was dealing with. It's like, hey, she did a really good job. She does a good job of giving Lisa the dimensionality needed for you to buy her internal conflict. Yeah. This idea that she feels guilty about what she's doing and that that guilt has transformed into genuine affection for Tom, the guy she's using, but she still has to, like, go through with everything because, like, this is what she believes. Because on the page, there isn't 
a lot to really help that along, other than the fact that Lisa has dialogue where she just straight up kind of says that. But again, all the events of this movie happen over the course of like a week. And so... Very explicitly. Like they say, it's only been a few days. Yes. You can count the days in the movie. So in order to believe that she's having like these changes of emotion and stuff, that comes down to the actress. And she does a good job of doing that. I also think all the guys are pretty good, too, at being... Because they have to ride a really thin line. Because they have to be likable enough that, like, oh, they're all friends and, like, haha, they're they're a group of guys who just get into... Hijinks. Hijinks. And, like, it's bad that they're being killed. But also, they have to be kind of, like, big enough jerks that we can see why they deserve to die. Yeah. Right? So they have to be that kind of classic macho guy who doesn't really think before he acts and kind of makes bad calls, but like, you know, is an all right guy, but is also kind of a jerk. Like Carl, for instance, is like really friendly and affable and like seems very outgoing and fun. But also like Lisa repeatedly says to um, Tom throughout the movie that she doesn't drink. She also doesn't smoke. I wonder how much that has to do with like, can a snake take a human amount of alcohol and not die of alcohol poisoning? Well, she's human. Is she? Anyways, we so, don't have to get into like the logistics of how this fictional no. transformation works. The point is, is that when Carl goes to get her a soda in the kitchen when she comes over to his place, he like slips some alcohol into it and brings it back. And it's like, oh, Carl. And like Tom has a lot of like really questionable behavior too, like letting himself into Lisa's apartment when he waits for her on the couch, like, he ends up just sleeping on her couch till she gets home, and then is all, like, never go anywhere without telling me about it ever again. And, like, you know, so they're all kind of guilty of bad behavior. And, I mean, the whole movie is set off by their bad behavior. So they have to be likable jerks, and that's kind of tough to do, and I think they all manage it really well. Yeah. Now, Paul is a sticky wicket for me. Okay. So Paul is the one who seems to kind of, like, be able to figure out what's going on. He mm-hmm. ties Lisa to the cult. But, and he he does acknowledge this, and everyone else does too, that his evidence is less than circumstantial. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of comes off as, like, him being kind of bigoted about, like, this foreign person moving into the place across the hall. Well, it is unclear to what extent Lisa reads as foreign to them. That is, that's fair. Like, we hear from the snake charmer who himself is a Lamian saying that, like, we can make the transformation. We don't know if you could make the transformation, white people. Mm -hmm. So it implies that Lisa would have to be... We saw her at the temple in Asia, so we know she's from there. But on the other hand, the name she gives to, uh, you know, everybody is Lisa Moya. Like, she doesn't give, like, a, you know, like, she's not giving, like, some sort of exotic foreign name. Nobody's asking her, like, oh, where's that accent from? Like, who who are your people? Yeah, and like, she doesn't have an accent, really. Right, so I'm, you know, given that she's a shapeshifter already, like, I'm unsure to what degree she reads as foreign. I feel like Paul's attitude, to me, didn't come across as bigoted. Because he's the one who's being the most even-handed in his treatment of the Lamian religion with people. Where 
when he explains it to Julia, for instance, and she says, oh, that's a weird kind of religion. And he says, well, they take it just as seriously as we do. Yeah. And I think the movie is surprisingly, like, even-handed about how it treats the Lamian cult and the fact that, like, they're not necessarily evil. Like, you guys legit fucked up. It's like if you, you know, a bunch of tourists went to, like, a Catholic mass, were super drunk, and decided, like, let's rush the priest at the front, steal the communion wine, and, like, (laughs) fucking run off. And then, like, the priest was like, cool, you guys are excommunicated. Like, right? You know, and like I said earlier, I like the fact that Paul's open-mindedness comes from the fact that he's a scientist. Yeah, especially because the movie we just watched, Revenge of the Creature, has the scientists being like, oh, us us eggheads can't figure out love. We can figure (laughs) out stars, but not love. Right, yeah, exactly. I think the other thing that kind of makes this movie not seem like a B-movie, um, just, like, in addition to all of the other things we've said, is the pacing. Nothing feels repetitive. Like, we're constantly moving forward. It does have the dual effect of, like, the pacing of events in the story. Um, like, the funeral for Rico being the next day being very odd. Those kind of things, like, wiggling in the back of your mind being, like, is it the next day? Like, what What day is it? When are we? Yeah, the movie takes place over a very short amount of time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, you realize that it does take place in as short amount of time as it seems when you're watching it. But, yeah, there are some things like that where it's like, you didn't really, like, think, think this through. This. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What struck me about the movie was that there are some themes going on here that I wouldn't necessarily have expected to see. Okay. Um, The first is the theme of post-war guilt. That is to say the idea of like these men coming home from the war who have done things back in the war that continue to haunt them in their new domestic lives that they don't like necessarily really want to talk about because they want to just pretend like they can just leave all the things they did back there in Asia. And, you know, even when Paul explains to Julia the story, he never explicitly mentions anything that they did. It's just a bunch of stuff that happened to them. Yeah. And he never really takes responsibility for it when he's telling the story to her. I feel like that's an interesting theme to think about in 1955 when you've got an entire suburban class of Americans who went overseas to fight, did a bunch of stuff, came home, and definitely never told anybody. And just, you know, everybody who I think had a grandparent or what have you in the Second World War has heard stories about how, you know, they didn't talk to people about their wartime experience or, you know, they came home every day and had their whiskey and didn't talk about things. And, like, that's a really common refrain, a really common story of that generation. And I think, you know, this is fictionalized into, like, we busted up a snake cult. But, like, I'm sure there's, you know, plenty of, like, hey, we committed a war crime. 
And like that's a thing that is true not just of World War II, but like people who came home from Vietnam, people who came home from Iraq, like a lot of different occasions where it's like you go to this other place, you do a bunch of things, and then you pretend like none of that happened when you come home. And I feel like that's a very, in some ways, a very uniquely American thing because of the way that... The distance, geographical distance. Right. World War II didn't really come home for the United States, right? So the fighting happened over there, and it's a different world, you know? And it can just stay over there. And so that's something I thought this movie was talking about. I have no idea how intentional that was, or if it was just like, well, we want to tell a story about a bunch of friends who did something bad overseas, and now they have this curse, and like a wartime background fits that really easily. Like, I'm not sure if it was just the practical storytelling or if there was an actual attempt to talk about those themes. Same as like, you know, you, you can go all the way back to, um, stories like the Moonstone, which is a, an early English novel that's about, you know, some guys who did some bad shit in India and got an Indian curse put on them. And then they're followed back to England by like, you know, thuggy assassins or something like that. And it's like, is this story intentionally trying to talk about the, you know, evils of colonialism coming home to roost? Or does that just make for, like, a good thriller plot? I, I can't speak to the novel. I, I don't know the novel mm -hmm. that you're describing. And I think in this film, I don't think they are... Someone sat down and was like, okay, I want to make a movie about this theme. How do we make that into a horror movie? Um... I'm sure that it, it's like a, a common enough story trope or story mm -hmm. beat. The idea of like you come home and then this exotic place, the evils of the exotic place follow you home reminds me of the xenophobia we saw in Dracula. Sure. I think what interests me is like the degree to which, even if it was unintentional, this movie is applicable to those stories with, like, you know, the literal were-snake coming here to kill you <laughs> being, you know, a metaphor for the, like, trauma and guilt that you bring back with you. I think it's more likely that there's something along the lines there than, honestly, a cat people rip-off. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I'm, I'm kind of getting to, is, like, yeah. this movie got accused of kind of ripping off cat people, but... Cat People is about Irina's struggles and her ambiguity. And the movie's not too sure until the last minute. Like, is she turning into a cat? And, like, you know, can she really not control herself? And, like, it's clear that, like, she doesn't want to be a murderous cat lady. And she is afraid of being a murderous cat lady and has no real evidence that she is one it's like a fear that she has and all these things and you know the struggle and the strain that puts on her relationship and you can kind of map that onto the relationship between tom and lisa and the guilt she feels and like all of that except that lisa we know is a snake cultist we know is turning into snakes and we know is killing people right so her guilt is less about, like, this ambiguity and more about, like, a literal... I feel guilty for killing your friends. Yes. And causing you pain. Yes. And the focus isn't really on Lisa. It's on these guys as, yep. like, a collective. 
Um, so I think intentional or not, I, I wonder how close to home this might have hit for people watching it. If there were people watching it in 1955 who were of the generation that went to war instead of being like, you know, a bunch of horny teens in their cars at the drive-in. <laughs> no, I think, I, yeah, I think you've identified a theme I, I wouldn't have even considered. I, I don't think this movie deserves the cat people rip-off reputation because the only similarities really are lady transforms mm-hmm. and feels guilty about it. <laughs> I think what's interesting is I don't think the story or the themes really come from Luton because it is missing that ambiguity. Yeah. I do think the movie took some Luton lessons in the horror bits. Like Absolutely. The way that it has Lisa stalking people is very Lutonian. And the way it tries to do a couple of Luton buses. Yeah, there's a, a few different like jump scare Luton buses in here. The whole scene where Rico's closing up the bowling alley and we know that like Lisa's kind of stalking him through the shadows just somehow managed to really remind me of the pool scene in Cat People and I think it was the use of like echo it was the use of like hearing Rico's steps echoing through the empty bowling alley and things like that and the way it built that tension so it feels like a movie that has Influences. Yes, that has learned lessons from Val Luton, but not so much in how it copies its story, but in how we scare people, right? Yeah, yeah. It is mixed with the universal style of explicitness with the plastic cobra and the monster POV shots and the transformation scenes. You don't really get any of that in Luton movies. No. But, I mean, I think this movie's a surprisingly good watch. And fun. The other big theme that the movie talks about that impressed me was this sort of domestic theme about the pressures on men to be in a relationship and the ways that that can lead men to making bad decisions or engaging in bad behavior. Okay, can you um, kind of extrapolate on that? So, in older movies, we often see that, like, the motivation of the female character is to fall in love and get a man and get married, and that's going to be the thing that, like, solves her life. (laughs) Sure. And, you know, we even kind of saw it a little bit in Revenge of the Creature, where the lead female character was, like, conflicted. Like, do I want a home or do I want a career? And the lead male character, like, he already had his career, his life's already figured out, He does want this girl, but, like, that's not his goal in life. His goal in life is to further his career, and he's already doing that, and this is just, like, a side achievement that he can get, and it's certainly not an either-or question. In a lot of old movies, you see this pressure on women, this idea of, like, oh, you gotta have a man and get married, you know, by the time you're 23, or else you're an old maid, and no one will ever look at you ever again, and you'll never find love, and if you don't find love, you won't be happy, blah, blah, blah. Whereas, like, men either just sort of have women fall into their laps because, hey, you're the protagonist of a movie, or if they are going after women, it's in a wolfish, like, gotta catch them all kind of um, 
womanizer kind of way, not in a you need to find a wife in order to be happy and complete. Um, this movie with Tom gives us a male character who shows that, you know, the way that men can feel that pressure too, where it's like, okay, well, your best friend and roommate is going to get married to the girl you wanted to get married to. And they're getting married like right away now. And you suddenly feel like you need to catch up. You know, you not only need a new girl, but you need a new girl who you can be as serious with as you just were with the last one so that you don't feel left out because yes, you want to be the bigger person and yes, you want them to be happy and to still be friends with them because you know that's what you're supposed to do. But man, that's going to be a lot easier if when the three of you go out to dinner, you've got someone of your own rather than you just being there on your own. I think you've hit on something because Tom visually looks older than the rest of the group. Yes. And so it's like this thing of like, you can't, you know, be this guy's roommate anymore once he gets like married and like you need someone of your own and he's clearly like hurting. And so he latches onto the first woman he sees. He actually brings up in the movie the question of like, is this just a rebound? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, there is a really big pressure on men to have a companion, to have a partner. It doesn't get shown in our culture, though. Like, culturally, there's all this pressure on, like, oh, you know, women gotta find a man. But there's tons of men who are lonely and who can't get a girl or, you know, a man, depending on what they want, but can't find a partner. What we are a lot more aware of, or is certainly is a lot more explicitly talked about here in 2020, is the way that that can lead to really bad behaviors, you know, with the, the whole, like, incel movement yeah. and stuff. But, like, the way that, you know, if you have a man who is, like, desperate like that and really feeling that pressure, then, like, yeah, that first woman he meets, like, yeah, we're gonna, like, lock this shit down. Like, we're boyfriend and girlfriend. I love you. I'm crashing on your couch. I got your keys. You don't go anywhere without telling me about it. Yeah, and I get the feeling that Tom isn't saying that to purposefully be controlling. It's definitely coming out of the fear of losing her. Exactly. Yeah. And it's the fear of losing her because you just found her and you're desperate to just kind of get that shit locked down. Yeah. Right? And making a bunch of bad choices because of that, because you're not thinking straight, because you're acting out of fear and this pressure. And so... You know, you have bad choices like being kind of a controlling ass to this woman you just met, kind of forcing yourself on her a little bit, saying I love you after like a day, like trying to like kiss a girl who's repeatedly indicated that she doesn't want you to, all that kind of stuff. Also in narrative, the falling in love with a girl you know absolutely nothing about who actually is a mysterious snake transformer who's here to kill you and your friends. You know, that kind of bad mistake <laughs> as well, right? But it's like his judgment is clouded because of this need to fulfill an expectation to have a girl. I have a feeling that the movie is engaging more with that theme than the earlier one that you identified about post-war guilt. Um, I think that that's there, obviously, because you picked it up, but um, I feel like the movie is more more interested in this second theme. 
at least as a motivating factor for why Tom is Tom. Right. I do think it's interesting that both of these movies, Revenge of the Creature and Cult of the Cobra, you know, are here in 1955, the height of the 1950s, a decade that gets kind of, like, stereotyped as the, like, domestic, like, mom and dad and two and a half kids and the white picket fence. Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, decade where, like, you know, here we are uh, 70 years later and people still use the 50s as, like, shorthand for, like, the idyllic family kind of thing. And these movies serve as really good evidence that, like, that was never, like, universally the case. In Revenge of the Creature, we have a female character who is expressing the kind of, like, career versus family... Tension. Tension that we more associate with, like, second-wave feminism in the 70s. And even the male character, like, you know does kind of acknowledge, like, well, I'm glad I don't have that problem. And, like, yeah, it sucks that, like, it's a double standard, but he does recognize it's a double standard and is sort of, like, a little bit sympathetic to her for that reason, even if there's a choice in there that he would rather she make. And here in this movie, we have the tables turned of the typical, like, you know, if you don't find a girl, you're going to feel incomplete story put onto the male perspective and showing that, like, it wasn't, necessarily automatic that you came home from the war and suddenly just had your wife and your kid and your white picket fence. But yeah, I think for a kind of forgotten, disregarded little B-universal horror film, it's surprisingly good, surprisingly competent, surprisingly intelligent for what it is. Yeah. And definitely, like, worth a watch. I would agree. But let's see how it compares to the other movies on the list. Mm. So, Ben, where were you looking on the list? Well, Sarah, I started by looking for the most recent female monster movie that we had. Which I think is La Bruya, the witch, from 1954. Which, despite not having a witch in it, did have a woman turned into a monster by a mad scientist for the purpose of going out and getting revenge on a bunch of guys by bringing them to the underground night court. (laughs) Night court. (laughs) So I went to go find that movie. That movie's sitting at number 59 on the list. I thought Cult of the Cobra is better. I would agree. La Bruya. Yes. Right above La Bruya is El Fantasma del Convento, which is a movie we really liked. And which I am not sure if Cult of the Cobra is better than that. So I made 59 my floor. Definitely above La Bruya, but, you know, not sure how much higher than that it goes. Working my way up from there, um, I kept passing movies that I thought, well, you know, maybe maybe this is better than that. At number 41, we have the Val Luton movie The Leopard Man. And, you know, we identified some Lutonian elements in this film. Above that is The Man Without a Face and... I think The Man Without a Face is better than Cult of the Cobra. Cult of the Cobra is really fun, but I think Man Without a Face, like, is more genuinely chilling in its story. Yeah. Even if the, like, ultimate twist of the story is easier to see coming now than it was in 1950. So I made that my ceiling. So my range is 41 through 59. Okay. My range is in yours. Oh, interesting. Um, I started by looking at where Revenge of the Creature is. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Revenge of the Creatures at number 52. I don't know how people may respond to this, but you are free to respond by going to our Ask Box submission box on Tumblr. Mm-hmm. But um, I kind of enjoyed Cult of the Cobra more than Revenge of the Creature. Okay. But I will admit that Revenge of the Creature is doing 3D underwater. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't really sure how Cult of the Cobra would compare, but I definitely knew that Cult of the Cobra was probably better than House of Dracula at 53. So 53 I put as my floor. Okay. Then kind of looking up, I was drawn around, I guess, the high 40s. Um, we have The Devil Commands at 46. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Man They Could Not Hang at 47. Um, the Black Room at 49, Amazing Mr. X at 50. I knew that the Black Room would be a contender against Cult of the Cobra, but I don't know about these others. So it kind of just was like, you know what? Have the Black Room be my ceiling. Mm-hmm. So I was looking 49 to 53. Okay. Yeah, the thing about the Black Room versus Cult of the Cobra is that ultimately, like, Faith Demerg is doing a good job, but she's not Boris Karloff. Yeah, not Boris Karloff in three simultaneous roles. Yeah, The Black Room is not Boris Karloff's best movie, but it is a very good showcase for Boris Karloff. Um, I certainly noticed The Black Room as I was, like, kind of making my way up, and what kept me going up was, like, right, but, like, the man they could not hang, the devil commands, like, mm mm-hmm-hmm. But I think you're right to identify it as a ceiling. What would you say to below The Black Room but above The Amazing Mr. X? The Turhan Bay movie about a spiritualist who uh, gets in league with a woman's thought-to-be-dead husband in order to drive her insane. Oh, they aren't in league, though. He just happens to still be alive. Right. And and Turhan Bay is just capitalizing on things. Right, but then, like, Turhan Bay ends up working for him at the end of the movie in the second half to drive them crazy, but then turns on him at the very end because he's fallen in love with the woman's daughter. Yeah, that's... that's it's, a, a, it's a whole movie. That's a whole movie. Yeah. And to, why it's on the list. Yeah, I think uh, Cult of the Cobra is much more succinctly uh, put together. Sure. Okay, do you want to do that then? Yeah. All right, well then, entering the list at the new number 50 below The Black Room, above The Amazing Mr. X, is Cult of the Cobra from 1955, directed by Francis D. Lyon. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we may have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach us directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. Except for next Wednesday. We update every Wednesday except for next Wednesday because we are taking a week off. Going on vacation. Yes. A socially distanced, well, uh, super responsible, well thought out vacation. Yes. If you'd like to help support the show... You can leave us a rating or a review, um, particularly on Apple Podcasts, really helps. Or you can share the show by sharing us to your friends on Twitter, Facebook, 
whatever social media you happen to use, um, or just tell a friend about us in person from six feet away. If you are able to, we would really appreciate it if you headed on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. We talked at the top of the show a lot about our Patreon benefits, but patrons at the 5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content. Um, our Halloween bonus content is available to patrons of all levels. And yes, if we hit $150 a month, we will begin to do monthly bonus episodes on horror-adjacent films, maybe such as the films of Faith Domergue that I mentioned earlier in the episode, like It Came From Beneath the Sea or This Island Earth. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, our next episode, which will be on the 18th, not the 11th, is going to be on the only movie that Charles Lawton ever directed. It's starring Robert Mitchum, and it is a cult classic. It is 1955's The Night of the Hunter. Ooh. Yeah, I know you've been looking forward for this one for a while. For a long while. And uh, it's cool to see Charles Lawton come back again mm-hmm. in any capacity on the show. He's, uh, he's a real treat. Yeah. So don't miss it, and we will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.